I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, food might be the most important thing we purchase. So why aren't there tighter regulations on it? We don't do that for anything else in our economy. We don't, we don't create toy stores and tell parents that, you know, most of the toys in the store are, are bad for your children. They're going to hurt your children, and you have to figure it out. Next, the untold stories and huge impact of the men who ruled the seas. These men were kind of the uh, Jeff Bezos of their time, that they sped up the supply chain of the delivery of tea. Then what happens when fashion meets tech? Clothing hasn't changed in decades. You're wearing relatively the same thing that your grandparents wore, you know, save maybe some changes in gingham patterns or silhouettes. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you ask doctors to name a health issue that has bedeviled Americans for years, one of the first answers you're going to get is obesity. But the science of how people gain weight, how to lose weight, and just in general, what foods make you a healthier person often feels to the public like it keeps changing. The science is changing, and that's normal. All sciences change. Cardiology has changed dramatically. Physics changes. Genetics uh, changes. Dariush Mozafarian is the dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University and one of the country's leading experts on nutrition. Uh, but what's different about nutrition is that it's so public. It's so immediately relevant to people that when the science changes in physics or when the science changes in cardiology, only a few people notice. But when the science normally and naturally changes in nutrition, everybody gets upset. So if you have a little whiplash over whether you should be eating fat or carbs, butter or olive oil, bread or Skittles, we're going to spend some time today looking at what the best and most recent studies show. And yes, we will get to that bread versus Skittles question. But Mozafarian, who's also a cardiologist, says part of the reason that a lot of the best work on obesity has been done recently and why we didn't understand weight and calories all that well a few decades ago is that, frankly, the study of nutrition is pretty new. This is, you know, one of the youngest and most rapidly advancing sciences that we have. So, you know, I would date modern nutrition science uh, to be less than 100 years old. And the first few decades of nutrition science were mostly about identifying vitamins and figuring out the roles they played in afflictions like rickets and scurvy and night blindness. And it really wasn't until the late 70s and 80s that nutrition uh, science started to really seriously turn its focus on chronic diseases like obesity and heart disease and cancers. And so that's, you know, even just a few decades old. Since we did start focusing on obesity, there have been missteps and incomplete findings. But Mozafarian says that recently the accumulation of data has convinced him of three things. Fat is really good for us. Most fats are actually really good for us. Fat's not uh, negative in general. Uh, Secondly, that we should be thinking about foods, not individual nutrients when we think about chronic diseases. And, And I guess third and lastly, and this is you know, I think still very controversial, but is that calories, you know, are are maybe not the right target for reducing obesity. Counting calories uh, is maybe a failure. We'll get to the research behind all three of those beliefs. But first, the one that, if you've paid attention to nutrition for a while, might feel the weirdest. Fat is good? 
you know, in the 1980s, the best evidence available, which was from really limited types uh, uh, and numbers of studies, suggested that, that fat was bad for heart disease and maybe increased risk of obesity. And it was really based on a lot of early theory. You know, fat has more calories per gram than carbohydrates or protein. And so people said, well, if there's more you know, calories per gram, and, and it may be linked to heart disease based on a few studies, you know, this seems like something we, we should reduce. The evidence was not convincing, but it was the best available. There have been so many studies since then. I, th I can't really point to any single study, but there have been multiple long-term observational studies where now, instead of looking hmm. across countries, as was done in the 80s, we're looking at individual people and their habits over decades. There have been major randomized trials. The Women's Health Initiative randomized trial in the United States. You know, 50,000 women randomized to a low-fat diet for 10 years and had no benefits. They had no effects on heart disease, no effects on, on diabetes, no effects on cancer. Mm. Um, many, many mechanistic studies showing benefits of healthy fats, um, unsaturated fats, and, and especially foods rich in, in fats like plant oils and nuts and fish. So I think just the, the weight of the evidence, and, and, it's, it, and it takes a while to translate that science to policy. And so the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in, in 2015, just a few years ago, it was one sentence buried in the, in the piece, but it said that, you know, there's no reason any longer to have a, a, a upper limit on fat intake. But that hasn't reached the public. Um, it hasn't reached industry. So you still see, you know, food products advertised for being low fat. The real challenge to me, I think, is while people mostly, scientists mostly now, accept that fat intake is not relevant for uh, cardiovascular disease or cancers, um, still people are really worried about obesity. And so, and, and counting calories is, is the new fetish. And so the fetish of the 80s and 90s was lowering fat. Now the fetish is just counting calories. And if you count calories, that pretty quickly turns into shorthand for fat because, again, per, per gram weight, higher fat foods have more calories. And so you see all these low-fat muffins and low-fat desserts and, you know, low-fat everything. And now the, the argument is calories, not fat per se, but it leads you to the same place. Um, and so I still think that, that, you know, the biggest probably single problem in the food supply is refined starch and sugar. Um, and healthy fats from healthy foods is a really great way to reduce starch and sugar. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about another of those three beliefs that you said you have about diet um, when you kind of look at the science. And that belief is connected to a recent study by, um, among others, Dr. David Ludwig at Harvard. And it really challenged this idea of a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Uh, so do you want to talk about like what it showed and uh, how it made you think differently? Yeah, so uh, you know, do, uh, Dr. Ludwig did a study, you know, where he took uh, people, had them lose weight, about ten percent of their body weight, in a very controlled fashion. And many previous studies have shown when people lose about ten or fifteen percent of their body weight, their metabolism goes down. The body fights back, um, and so people get cold. Their energy goes down. They're actually burning less energy, and they gain weight. And he had previously published a study that was uh, sh showed that you know over a month, if you tried different diets at, in that setting over a month, that you know high fat, low carbohydrate diets didn't have that effect on reducing the amount of calorie you burn. It was really low fat diets that did that. And so now he has extended that with a twenty week study, where he fed people diets and showed that 
what you eat independent of the calories actually changes your metabolic expenditure, the, the calories you burn. So just think about that for a second. I mean, it really blows you know, out of the water, this idea that all calories are the same, that the type of food you eat independent of the calories you know, changes the energy you burn. And then we also have to remember that, you know, when you, when we eat foods and calories are burned, they're not just burned by our bodies, they're burned by our bodies and by our gut bacteria. So we're feeding ourselves and our gut bacteria. And there's work going on by Rachel Carmody at Harvard and others suggesting that, you know, if you eat refined starch and sugar, for example, it all gets digested really quickly in the stomach and small intestine our bodies get all the calories. If you eat, you know, minimally processed, less refined foods like fruits or nuts or true minimally processed whole grains or beans, then a lot of those calories get get to the bacteria um, and actually are absorbed because we don't digest them that quickly. And the bacteria are burning the calories. And so just a few examples, there's other examples of foods with the same calories having different effects on the brain's reward centers, on, you know, liver fat synthesis, so, you know, we are really beautiful and complex organisms and calorie for calorie, the kinds of foods we eat in the long run will have a very different effect on our long-term risk of, of weight gain. And again, this is very controversial. There's many scientists, uh, most national policies are still really focused on calories. Uh, one, one example mm-hmm. is is the national uh, law now that all chain restaurants, you know, have to post the calories. People are going to notice this when they go into restaurants that the calories are posted now on the on the menu boards and on the one hand it seems like a good idea you know we should probably know the calories in the foods but on the other hand it, it's it gives the message that you can judge the healthfulness of foods and and what how much risk of weight gain you you will have just based on the calories and i think that's fundamentally flawed it's much better to have a thousand calories of healthy food than to have 600 calories of unhealthy food. And, and we, we should define what healthy and unhealthy mean. But I think, you know, this focus on calories, that's really global. There's a global fetish now about calorie counting because of the global obesity epidemic. I think it's a mistake. I think it's really interesting to contemplate the notion that perhaps in 10 years, we will not think of calories as the thing that makes you gain or lose weight. And, you know, when you talk about this study, uh, part of what the researchers said coming out of it was maybe certain kinds of foods turn your body into really great calorie storage machines. And other kinds of food, they don't they don't store the calories just aren't stored that well. They're there. They're just not stored that well, like as fat on your body. Yeah. And so that, you know, that study was really focusing on insulin and the role that insulin has to play in, in storage of, of energy and, and foods that right. give rise to bursts of insulin, like, you know, potatoes and white bread and crackers and soda and candy, um, which are all actually pretty similar. You know, uh, I, I try to explain to people that like most breakfast cereals or white bread, think of it as a, a bag of Skittles, right? And if you want to have it, that's fine, but it's essentially metabolically the same. So if you have... Do you really, you think of a white bread as similar to Skittles? 100%. I mean, it has really? the, the studies that, that are done to look at the glycemic response to foods, the standards that can be used, you use a standard, you test, you know, different foods, their glycemic response, how, how fast they, they, they cause uh, blood sugar and insulin to rise, you test them against standards. The two standards that are used are 
you know, 100 grams of table sugar or 100 grams of white bread. They're identical. <laughs> so, so you can pick either one. Um, and so, you know, it's really not that different um, if you have a refined grain or, or a sugar. And so that, that's the insulin, you know, role of insulin. But as I've mentioned, there's also the way our microbiomes deal with foods. There's also our brain response. There's also our liver response. And so it's not just about insulin, uh, but, but insulin plays an important role. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Dariush Mozafarian, a cardiologist. He's dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts. Um, we were talking about fat before, and you actually worked recently on a study about uh, the linkage between dairy fat and type 2 diabetes. And I, I honestly think if you said to a lot of people, you know, what are the good fats? They would say olive oil, nuts. Um, and if you think, what are the bad fats? They'd be like cheese and butter and sour cream. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about what you found in terms of uh, dairy fat? Yeah, you know, dairy is one of the most interesting categories in the food supply. It's about 10 or 15 percent of calories, which is a lot. And it's all of the guidelines about dairy have been from kind of these single nutrient reductionist approaches where you say, well, you know, we need to get a certain amount of calcium. We need to get a certain amount of vitamin D. So we should eat dairy products and we want to avoid calories and avoid saturated fat. So we should have nonfat dairy products. Very, very simplistic. I mean, that's basically unchanged for the last 40 years. But what we're finding, what the science is showing really interesting and exciting is first, you know, milk is not cheese, is not yogurt. But yogurt and cheese are fermented. Cheese is fermented in particular ways. Yogurt has probiotics. Um, there are special um, uh, uh, nutrients in, in cheese because of the fermentation that aren't present in milk. And, and, and so first, mm. we shouldn't be talking about dairy. We should separately think about milk and yogurt and cheese as really three different foods. And then secondly, you know, what's really interesting is in, in our work that we've been now doing for several years, we've published several individual papers, and now we put together all of the world's evidence from 16 large studies around the world to look at, um, when you look at biomarkers in the blood, there, there are certain fatty acids in the blood you can measure that really just come from dairy fat. The human body doesn't make them. They don't really come from other major sources. And People, when we looked at combine all these studies from around the world, over 60,000 people with blood measurements of these fatty acids that come from dairy fat, consistently people who had higher levels of these fatty acids, which again are, are markers of eating dairy fat, had lower risk of diabetes. Um, and so, hmm. you know, a very, very consistent. So really this notion again that even, you know, dairy fat is bad, um, I think really has to be questioned. Hmm. Do, do you... Feel, when you look at the numbers and you think about obesity and type 2 diabetes, do you see it continuing to go up before things get better? Or have we, have we plateaued? Have things turned around? Unfortunately, things are going to get worse before they get better. And, okay. and you know, every country in the world uh, has rising obesity. So, and that right there lets us know that this calorie focus has not worked, right? Empirically, for 30 years, we've been telling people to count calories and reduce their calories. And there's not a single nation in the world that has a reduction um, in obesity. So we really need to change direction and think about food quality. Um, we need a lot more research. I mean, one thing that I've uh, started to talk about is that the National Institutes of Health, which is an incredible engine 
in our country for science discovery doesn't have a National Institute of Nutrition. You know, there's a National Institute mm. focused on the heart. There's a National Institute focused on cancer. There's a National Institute focused on alcohol. And there's, you know, many major health conditions are covered. But nutrition, the biggest driver of health of them all, is is kind of scattered across the, the NIH. So I think we need to think about a new... National Institute of Nutrition, which will let us perform, you know, major, major new studies to un understand these these questions. Mm. How good do you think the government is at picking up on the changes in nutrition? Because when you think about the impact on, you know, people who get food stamps, millions of people, people who eat school lunches, millions of people, uh, the government and, and our food intersect every day all the time. And the government has a lot of sort of power in some ways to control what many people, uh, children is a, you know, a big population eat. Well, you know, I think one of the most exciting things in the last year even ha has been the federal government's recognition here in this country that food is medicine, that we really need to address food if we're going to get rising uh, healthcare costs under control. And other countries have started to realize this. So, you know, things are changing so quickly. You know, Mexico passed a sugar sweet beverage tax and a junk food tax. Chile has put these black box warning labels on every product in their food system. Many other countries are passing taxes or labeling systems. And the U.S. has been a little bit behind, but really rapidly catching up. Um, the, the new farm bill actually um, has some new um, features in it, which are really positive. So it greatly expanded a, an incentive program to subsidize fruits and vegetables. Um, and it also, for the first mm. time, um, included up to $25 million for new projects, new pilot projects to test using fruit and vegetable prescriptions in healthcare so that in Medicare and Medicaid, you could go to your doctor and, and get a prescription and, and your insurance will partially pay for your fruit or vegetable. And, and these are pilot projects, but if they work... Really? Yeah. So they can prescribe like... We want you to take a. We want you to have a lot more fruits and vegetables. It goes on the RX pad, and your insurance company helps you pay for those fruits and vegetables. Absolutely, and and again, these are it's twenty five million dollars. That's that's a drop in the bucket compared to our national healthcare spending. But if it works, you know, and it gets extended to Medicare and Medicaid, it could be incredibly powerful. We we've done research um, showing that giving fruit and vegetable prescriptions in Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and, and having insurance help pay for it is just as cost effective as blood pressure screening control or cholesterol lowering drugs. So wow. we have to really focus on this, that one in five dollars in our entire economy is being spent on healthcare right now. And it's only going up. It's only accelerating. And that's completely unsustainable. And nutrition is missing from the healthcare system. I mean, just think about that. The number one cause of poor health in this country you know, bad nutrition is missing from healthcare, and so I think these food as medicine approaches are are going to happen in the next few years. They have to happen because otherwise, the government, private businesses, the economy is all going to crash from rising healthcare costs. So, a final question here: um, It's pretty tricky for an average consumer, as we were talking about at the beginning to hear about new research. And then also they may not be able to assess, like, how good is this research? Was it funded by the tomato growers or the almond growers or whoever? Um, so what's the advice that you would give to, like, ordinary people who are out there every day just trying to make good choices? One of the craziest things to me is that we're we're leaving all these choices up to the consumer. We're putting them in this wild west of products um, different stores, different information, and saying, you figure it out. Um, you know, we don't do that 
if you just stop and think about it, we don't do that for anything else in our economy. We don't, we don't create toy stores and tell parents that, you know, most of the toys, toys in the store are, are bad for your children. They're going to hurt your children. And you have to figure it out. Um, look online, you know, read the studies about the toy safety, shop around the, the outsides of the toy store. Don't shop in the aisles in the middle. Read, <laughs> right. read the labels. You know, we know most of the toys are bad for you or, or cars. You go to buy a car and, you know, the guy at the, the car dealership says, yeah, a lot, most of the cars here are, are bad and don't meet really minimum standards of, of, of safety. But we're not going to tell you and you have to go figure it out and you can't really right. predict and it's going to change in two years. <laughs> so it's really strange that food, one of the most important parts of our economy and our lives has been sort of left to free will and, and personal choice. And I think that has to change. We have to recognize that food more importantly than many of these other things, has to meet sort of minimum standards for safety, which includes not just not having bacteria in it, but not making us sick. And so I think that, to me, is where I want to go. Um, in the meantime, you know, to get to your question, until that happens, and I think it has to happen, um, in the meantime, I think it's it's really hard. And so I think for consumers, you know, the kind of biggest messages I would give is there's no one-word fix. So you can't just be vegan or vegetarian or paleo or low carb. You can't pick one or organic or local. You can't pick one word and solve the equation. It's not, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And after that, you know, a couple of golden rules, as I said, eat foods that give rise to life, eat nuts and beans and fruits um, and seeds, minimally processed whole grains as, as much as you can, avoid refined starch and sugar. Cook, you know, cook as much as you can. Assemble if you can't cook, right? That right there, um, you know, leads to a lot of health. And then, you know, enjoy your food with with friends and family. Don't try to eat on the run and and not pay attention to what you eat. Do your best. Um, for low-income Americans, for single parents or dual-working parents, those things are hard. And so we really need government to step in and fix this. And this isn't just a moral issue. I mean, this is a, an economic issue. This is a profound economic challenge to our country in terms of healthcare. So I think government should be really excited about fixing this because it's win-win. We can sell food, industry can be profitable, consumers can be healthier, healthcare costs can go down, and we can use those savings to do all the other things that everyone's always arguing about. Dr. Dariush Mozafarian is Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. He's a cardiologist. Dariush, thanks so much for being here. Kara, thank you so much for having me on the program. If you want to know more about how the food industry affects our calorie consumption, we did a segment on what science tells us about artificial sweeteners and how Americans fell in love with them. You can find that segment and other segments about food on our website, innovationhub.org. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. During the Civil War, a bunch of young kids in New York wrote to their dad. But their dad wasn't in southern states fighting. He was in Hong Kong making money. These were men who knew how to think well ahead of the curve and also had kind of a, you know, a ruthlessness uh, in terms of where they put their money and how they operated their businesses. 
Warren Delano, whose children wrote to him during the Civil War, was one of a group of fortune hunters who took huge risks on the high seas, says historian Stephen Ujifusa. And while they were at it, those fortune hunters reshaped America. Delano became the grandfather of a president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And plenty of other families used the age of super-fast clipper ships to cement their prominence in society, like the Forbes family and Abel Abbott Lowe, whose son would become mayor of New York. These men were kind of the uh, Jeff Bezos of their time, that they sped up the supply chain of the delivery of tea from China to New York and Boston, and also sped up the delivery of goods from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush. Ujifusa is the author of the book Barons of the Sea, which chronicles the brief but incredibly important era of the clipper ship. Ships that were tall and slim with huge white billowing sails. Ships meant to cut through the water as fast as possible. And ships that folks like Warren Delano moved around in a huge chess game, playing out all over the world. In fact, the city of San Francisco grew from a fishing village of around 2,000 people in the late 1840s to a major metropolis by the late 1850s because these clipper ships carried everything needed to build a great city. Ujifusa says that these boats were, yes, incredibly lucrative, but the chess game they were moving in was deadly and dangerous. Forces of nature were often against them, and sometimes so were international politics. This was pure, unadulterated, laissez-faire capitalism. These ships were built bigger and faster and loftier Without any sort of government regulation of any kind, in fact, these ships were not given trial voyages. They were built in yards in Boston and New York, launched and loaded up with a a full cargo of goods worth, you know, $100,000 to $200,000. That's a, today's money, that's a huge amount. And then crewed up with 50 or 60 men and then sent off to China, sent off to San Francisco, and whatever happened, happened. What happened, not infrequently, was disaster. Remember, in the heyday of the clipper ships, which only lasted from the 1840s to the 1860s, there was no Suez Canal, there was no transcontinental railroad. If you wanted to get a ship full of stuff from New York to San Francisco, you had to go around the tip of South America. If you're trying to get goods from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush, you're talking about a city during the peak boom years where an egg would sell for a dollar. We're talking 1850s dollars. That's about, to put a rough estimate, around a $20 egg. Uh, if you got those eggs from New York or New England to San Francisco first, you would make the most money and command the highest freight rates. So the old saying was, uh, to uh, make money during a gold rush, don't dig for gold, sell goods to the miners. Mm. And uh, at the same time, tea is something that we just take for granted today. Uh, We could just buy it at Whole Foods or buy it at any local supermarket whenever we want. Well, uh, tea in the uh, mid-19th century, this was a good that only came once a year uh, after the first spring pickings in China. So whatever merchant got the tea to New York or Boston the fastest would make the most money. Hmm. Do you feel like, you know, you talked, we talked about Delano, obviously, that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, you know, was going to be part of that family and Forbes. Um, Do you feel like the people who were drawn to this sort of race to get around the world as fast as possible, um, were these like unusual people in that they were like, had a kind of taste for, Uh, being daring, more daring than your average person? 
I think very much so. The uh, men that own these clipper ships in New York and Boston, these were people who really liked to put long-haul bets. This is a time before transportation was even reliable. Ships could leave on a schedule, but you never know when they'd arrive. So you'd have to had that sort of betting mindset. And also, a number of the characters I write about in the book, most notably Warren Delano, but also the Forbes brothers, they spent time in China as young men in their early 20s, uh, anywhere from five to 10 years away from their families. And the purpose of this time abroad was to make money in the China trade, smuggling opium in from India and Turkey into China and using the proceeds of that, most of the proceeds of that, to buy tea to ship home. Hmm. That itself was a dangerous and up until the uh, First and Second Opium Wars, a pretty much a legal business, at least uh, smuggling the opium into China. And yeah, to take that sort of risk as a young man and, and get involved in that kind of trade required kind of like a sort of toughness that's sort of hard to imagine today. Hmm. So when you talk about smuggling opium into China, um, I mean, this is something that's highly addictive. By the mid-1800s, millions of Chinese were addicted. How were these American fortune hunters, how were they changing China? And, you know, what was the government there saying to them? And, like, how did uh, Chinese government officials feel about the opium trade? Well, the imperial Chinese government called opium foreign mud. And it was banned uh, in 1799 from being imported into the Celestial Kingdom. But the uh, British merchants, the Americans, would smuggle these, smuggle the drugs in on these very small little schooners that were built very slim, very lightly, and they were very fast. And they would basically drop anchor at one of the Chinese ports that is closed to a foreign trade. And the captain would uh, plead with the Mandarin official who had come to this opium clipper saying, oh, we're short on water and food. We need to reprovision. And the Mandarin would then say, oh, okay, great. I get it. How much opium would you have on board and where's my bribe? Hmm. Well, <laughs> the, uh, that, was, that was the code. And then the silver would change hands and a crew from onshore would row to the opium clipper and uh, the drugs would be rowed ashore. The money would change hands and then the opium vessel would carry on to Canton, modern-day Guangzhou, which was the only port legally open to foreign trade until the 1840s. Hmm. And the Chinese government initially felt kind of helpless regarding this uh, problem up until uh, the 1830s when they decided to crack down on it, when the amount of silver flowing out of the imperial coffers just became too great, and they cracked down by seizing about 20,000 chests of opium from the Westerners in the foreigners' colony in Canton. Uh, that's about tens of millions of dollars worth of drugs. How did the money that j- just give me a little bit of a sense of the money that the that these sort of barons of the sea were making and how that money itself was kind of affecting America because their families, you know, were uh, just being there was just huge amounts being infused um, into these families. Yeah, Warren Delano II, for example, his big break uh, after he uh, returned from China with his fortune, he began investing along with several of his friends, including the Forbes brothers and Abel Abbott Lowe, into these clipper ships. He actually redeployed one of his clipper ships from the China trade and made her the first clipper ship to sail from New York to San Francisco in 1848. And that ship cut down the typical sailing time around Cape Horn from 180 days to 120 days. And 
a good clipper ship on the California run could pay off the cost of her construction in a single voyage. Uh, these are talking about a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, which is a, a huge fortune. And what these men did is that they took these profits from their clipper ships and then then began investing them in newfangled technologies such as railroads, the transatlantic cable, really? western lands, copper mines, coal mines, and those that were smart by the 1860s had divested of the clipper ships because they were no longer economically profitable and had invested them in other enterprises. Uh, the hmm. Forbes family example invested this money into the Michigan Central Railroad, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, and eventually that fortune was invested into a company that became the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Ujifusa, a historian and author of Barons of the Sea and their race to build the world's fastest clipper ship. You've talked about so many voyages to California. Do you feel like if it weren't for the advent of clipper ships, the California that we know today, where something like something close to 40 million people live, right, the single most populous state in the United States, um, that it just wouldn't have been there uh, without uh, the, the the ships to supply it. No, I don't think so. Uh, San Francisco is, in many ways, culturally still an extension of Boston and New York. And that was largely because uh, so many of these uh, people from the Northeast came and settled. I mean, 100,000 people dropped what they were doing. They were mostly men, uh, dropped everything they were doing and tried to find some way to get to California to get rich quick. Hmm. And... To build the city of San Francisco required an immense amount of building materials, you name it, chairs, tables, crockery, booze, because California didn't have its own industrial or agricultural infrastructure. Meanwhile, the Northeast did. So anything you can conceive of was put on these clipper ships and sold for a tremendous amount of money, as I mentioned earlier. An egg sold for a dollar in San Francisco in, right. in the early 1850s. Boots sold for sixty dollars. Sixty dollars in our dollars. Sixty dollars in their dollars. In 1850s dollars. That is incredible. I mean, yeah. sixty dollars seems like a reasonable price for boots now. And multiply uh, that times around twenty or twenty-five. Wow. And uh, these are like thousand or two thousand dollar boots. Yes, and you had people actually, you know, not everybody, but some people in the California gold fields actually getting rich quickly. And mm -hmm. there's a reason why they called the mass transit cards in San Francisco clipper cards. The clippers built San Francisco. And honestly, one thing I wish I could see, uh, if I could go back in time, is be on Telegraph Hill in, say, 1851, 1852, and watching a clipper ship like the Flying Cloud arrive in San Francisco through the Golden Gate. This is before the bridge is built. Imagine this beautiful swan-like vessel with trim lines and snow-white sails with some gilding on the stern glinting in the sunlight arriving in San Francisco. And this was the sort of thing that would cause a commotion. You'd have people running down mm. to the waterfront to greet the ship. What is this new ship that's come in and what is she carrying? What kind of goods is she now carrying that we could buy? It was a magical moment, and the hmm. ships had just been cleaned and painted and scrubbed by the crew in preparation for arrival because these ships took a huge beating going right. around Cape Horn. Of course. Do you think that the peri that period of history has anything to teach us now? I don't know. Is there anything that uh, sort of you might be thinking about uh, because you know well about this period of history that, you know, most people wouldn't? 
I think the lessons of the opium trade are that, look, the this drug, which wreaked so much havoc in China and built a lot of this nation's early wealth, uh, the Chinese have not forgotten the start of the so-called century of humiliation in the uh, 1830s, 1840s. And uh, that's something that we should remember very carefully. And these clipper ships, they are so beautiful to look at in paintings, and they are universally seen as kind of symbols of enterprise and daring, and they're aesthetically just so beautiful to look at. When you, There's not a single American clipper ship that survives intact to this day, but the image is just so stirring. But these ships, at the same time, were freighters. They were built to make money. They were mm-hmm. built for speed. And the conditions on board were brutal if you were an ordinary sailor. And the concept of danger is just so different from the mid-19th century to today. If you were a clipper ship sailor and you were in the middle of a storm off Cape Horn and you had to shorten sail and you looked up at a mast that was 13 stories tall or more and you were told by the first mate you're, cl- you're going up there and shortening sail wow. and the mast is swinging through this huge arc, you couldn't say, no, that's against the regulation or you know, I can't do that, that's not safe. I mean, today you'd have recourse. In those days, you'd get flogged mm-hmm. <laughs> for uh, insubordination. I think that the value of human life, sadly, in the mid-19th century was a lot less. Mm-hmm. And also, who was there to report on it? There was no radio communication right. from these ships. So what happened at sea, no one really talked about. Right. Stephen Ujifusa is a historian. He's the author, most recently, of Barons of the Sea and their race to build the world's fastest clipper ship, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. If you want to see pictures of the Grand Clipper ships, we've got them for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And we've also got a link to an article there about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's connection to China, which, not surprisingly, stemmed from the experiences of his grandfather, Warren Delano. back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. During the past several weeks, you probably got a few gifts, maybe some high-tech stuff like a video game or a tablet, maybe some lower-tech stuff like a winter jacket or a nice shirt. But here's a big question. When will those two categories collide? If your car and your watch and your thermostat, if they can become fancy and techy, why not your shirt? Turns out it's happening. Shirts that adjust to your body temperature, jackets with heaters and sensors in them. And that may be the stuff of holidays to come, which we will get to. But in some ways, there have been huge technological advances in retail over the past few decades. A little company from Bentonville, Arkansas, Walmart, became legendary for their ability to instantly track what products sold at what stores all over the country. Other retailers lusted after the advantage that this information gave them. And the cutting-edge system quickly changed the game. Walmart cut the legs out from under a lot of single-category stores in a lot of places, and not just little towns, but, you know, places like Raleigh and Kansas City, slightly larger towns. That's journalist Charles Fishman, who I talked to about a year ago and who has written extensively about Walmart. Then Walmart's innovative thinking got overshadowed by the relentless inventions 
of another retailer. Walmart is five times, six times the size of Amazon. But Amazon today is the company that sets the rules of the retail landscape. And in the last three or four years, Amazon has doubled in size and Walmart has grown by 2% a year. So it's 2% on top of a really big base, but it's Amazon that is innovating and it's Amazon that people fear. And among the, the folks who fear Amazon is Walmart. Still, as much computing power has gone into figuring out supply chains and making sure that the add to cart button is in exactly the right place, a lot less attention has gone into what's inside the store or inside the box. T-shirts, socks, blazers, they are pretty much what they've been for a long time, which is why a new wave of companies is looking not to invent a new rewards program or faster shipping routes. They want to change the clothes themselves. And that brings us to Gihan Amarasiri Wardena. In some ways, Gihan was a normal kid. He went to school in New England. He was a Boy Scout. But in other ways, he really wasn't your average kid. Early on, I, I would take, you know, Tyvek home wrap, laminate that to ripstop and make rain jackets that way. I would take space blankets, run through my parents' paper shredder and make sleeping bags that way. So I've been hacking performance clothes for a long time. It's been a passion. Gihan wanted to be warmer when he camped out at the lake in January. So he pulled his parents' sewing machine out of the closet and started stitching all sorts of stuff together. Meanwhile, in Georgia, a kid named Aman Advani was also doing unusual things to his clothes. It would start by, in my case, Googling, you know, dry fit dress socks, for instance, and, uh, and that just didn't exist. And Googling, 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 realizing that it's just not there. And so ultimately then, just like Gihan, deciding to hand sew the stuff. So taking the sole out of a dry fit pair of running socks taking the sole out of a pair of, of gold-toed dress socks and, and actually merging the two together into kind of a Franken-sock mm-hmm. using kind of basic hand <laughs> sewing. Now, it's not, I, just as somebody who doesn't know how to sew, was this like a skill you really had? Or did you develop it because you needed these socks and like then you needed to know how to sew? God, I wish I had a better answer for that. The, the reality was I, it was mom and I on the couch <laughs> on, again, kind of Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Sewing your Franken-socks, yeah, okay. yeah. Aman and Gihan grew up. They went to college, to the Georgia Institute of Technology and MIT, where hacking computers is the order of the day, and they became engineers. And then in 2012, they decided, well, computers are great, but why aren't we hacking dress shirts? So we, we developed this moisture-wicking, wrinkle-free dress shirt that uh, had four-way stretch in it, and it was really born out of kind of some experiences that we'd had and, and with our peers that dress shirts were just the source of all discomfort in professional clothing. People really hated wearing it. And so we started off initially by cutting up running shirts and literally sewing dress shirts out of them. And we were able to solve some of the problems, but we, we had found... Did they look good? They did not look good. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to go to your banking interview in this. Probably no. not. Okay. In fact, the first prototypes, I, I sewed the, the cuff backwards, so the, the buttons were on the wrong side. It was You could tell that they're, they're homemade. <laughs> Ultimately, the hackers ended up turning to a fabric that NASA had created, a fabric meant to absorb the heat of astronauts and then give it back to them when they were colder. It's called a phase change material. It's basically like a thermal battery for heat. And what it does is it absorbs any excess heat that your body's emitting, stores it in the material by basically having wax melt. And then when you go into an over-AC'd office, it actually freezes and releases that heat back to you. So it's 
an intelligent thermal control system, but it's all passive, which is pretty cool. So the idea is, okay, so you're, so you're biking and it's hot, and the idea is the um, shirt absorbs some of this heat. Yeah. Then you go back into the office, and it regulates again, maybe gives you some of it back. Back, exactly. Okay, all right. Aman and Gihan launched this techie dress shirt in 2012 on the website Kickstarter, which allows people to put money towards products they like. And it was a runaway hit. They formed a company called Ministry of Supply. But in some sense, they were late to the party. Nike and Under Armour and other companies have been trying to incorporate technology into sports products for years. Yeah, you know, we, we like to talk about this. Can we, we have this investor pitch that we were giving in like 2012 and 13. We had this line in there that was something to the tune of, you know, clothing hasn't changed in decades. You're wearing r- relatively the same thing that your grandparents wore, you know, save maybe some changes in gingham patterns mm-hmm. or silhouettes, right? So micro trends or macro trends. But for the most part, what's under the hood, kind of what's actually in that garment really hasn't changed in any dramatic way outside of the gym, right? So there's a ton of progress we've seen in the performance sector where your body is kind of pulling these features. But outside of that, the other kind of 23 hours of the day have been relatively untouched by by technology and the impact it could have. We talk a lot about Moore's Law and this kind of speed of innovation that just hasn't really affected clothing yet. And so it's, it's our mission to kind of change that. What Aman and Gihan have done with Ministry of Supply, pumping tech into everyday clothes, is something that hasn't reached most of us yet. They've opened a bunch of stores around the country, including one in Boston, where I interviewed them. And they're part of a new crop of businesses trying to solidify the marriage between tech and fashion. And then, this winter, Aman and Gihan introduced a product that they hope will remake our wardrobes. It's a pretty thin jacket meant for the dead of winter with heating panels in it. The panels use the same technology as seat warmers in a fancy car. It's also got an accelerometer, like your phone does, which senses when you're moving and when you're not. So it doesn't generate as much heat for someone in motion as it does when that person is sitting still. Because when you're sitting still, like at a bus stop, you're probably getting really cold. In some ways, if you take a step back, it's weird that that flexibility doesn't exist in clothes. Think about your car. If it's hot outside, you put on the air conditioning. And if it's cold, you put on the heat. So... Why can't you do that with your jacket? So when you're traveling from Boston to Florida, for example, and you show up with a down jacket and you're stuffing in the overhead you know, container, now you can have something that actually works in a wider range. But it's also kind of where we think wearables are going to go. Um, right now, uh, wearables have focused a lot on data acquisition, helping us understand our health, our activity levels. But it doesn't necessarily help us take an action on that in terms of our comfort. And so what we're excited about is this type of technology having a a heating element that's very low profile that can actually act on that information to allow you to have a better jacket. You buy a jacket to keep you warm and to keep you warm at the right time. This will do a better job of that. It it also feels to some degree like if you do look down into the future and you think about things like Fitbits and Apple Watches, it feels to some degree like clothes and those, you know, sort of chunky things that you might wear around your wrist may be sort of uh, coming into one, right? I mean, I know there are already like sports bras that track how fast you're going or how many steps you, like that instead of having two separate things, 
you know, the the functions that, you know, maybe your Fitbit once did will maybe be inside your clothes. What you're describing with Fitbits or Apple Watches, which are beautiful devices, is it's a way to make technology wearable, right? It's, you know, it's a computer with effectively a strap on it to put somewhere on your body. With this jacket, we kind of wanted to start with the opposite input, which was not how do we make technology wearable, but how do we make wearables more technical? And so we started off by saying, first and foremost, before we even talk about heating elements, this needs to be the greatest jacket that ever existed, right? So we, we use the analogy a lot that if an, an escalator is broken, it's a really good set of stairs, mm-hmm. and that this needs to be the, the greatest set of stairs before we decided to put you know, any technology into those stairs. This needed to handle everything on its own. And so in that way, we do think the two worlds will merge. We just have an angle on it that starts off on the wearable side instead of on the tech side and looks at beautifully integrating the technology instead of the other way around. Do you think about the fact that, you know, right now, having technologically advanced fabric, having things 3D printed, it's a lot more expensive than the clothes you can get at lots and lots of places. Do you feel like this right now is for obviously wealthier people? And I I wonder if you think that'll change. I mean, our our hope is that, you know, there is the ability to start making these products at scale. But right now, what we're actually seeing is kind of a cultural shift towards kind of fewer and better products that what we want to do is think about how can that blazer that you use be used not just for, you know, that wedding, but also your board meeting, but also you feel comfortable flying in it. That these are all use cases that you can take your product through. And looking at versatility in the style, versatility in the functionality, those are things that allow us to have fewer but better products and you know for a company that sells clothing it's not something you'd expect us to say but that's something we deeply believe in is you know when you have kind of this this minimal wardrobe it actually saves you time kind of thinking about what you have to wear it it makes your travel suitcase a lot smaller there's a lot of ramifications for it to Aman Advani and Gihan Amara Siriwardena at the Boston branch of their company, Ministry of Supply. And this is a little bit of editorializing on my part, but if the coming technological shift in clothes seems big, imagine the cultural shift that we'd have to make to set our sights on just a few high-quality outfits rather than a closet stuffed with lots and lots of cheaper options. By the way, if you want to catch some of Aman and Gihan's creations, you can find them on display for the next few months at the Museum of Science in Boston. They're in the Wicked Smart exhibit. And I should add that the Museum of Science has, from time to time, been an underwriter of this program. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Wen Lei. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.